The way to think differently is to act differently and get comfortable with being uncomfortable. Welcome to the Unlearn Podcast, where host Barry O'Reilly seeks to synthesize the superpowers of extraordinary individuals into actionable strategies you can use to think big, start small, and learn fast, and find your edge with excellence. Here's your host, Barry O'Reilly. Welcome to the Unlearn Podcast. On this show, I'm delighted to be joined by Amy Jo Kim, game designer, startup coach, and author of the fantastic book, Game Thinking. Now, Game Thinking is a proven innovation system trusted by game studios, startups, and global brands. Amy Jo was actually on the early design teams of games such as Rock Bands and The Sims. She helped companies like Netflix and eBay find their customers to help them scale to the businesses they are today. She's all about distilling the habits of high-producing teams into step-by-step systems so they can innovate faster, 10x their experiments, and find product market fit fast. So what is game thinking, and what can it do for you? How much time can it save you? How much faster can it help you reach your goals? Well, we'll share and discuss this over the course of the show. But before we start, it's always interesting to know how Amy Jo found her rhythm in this space? I have always loved games and creativity and music, kind of in equal measures. And my family didn't do particularly a lot of that, but I loved music early on and, and did well. So my parents put me in piano lessons and they put me in competitions and it killed my love of music because... <laughs> All of a sudden, these people that had been my friends who also loved music were my competition at the regional piano competitions. And I really didn't like that change of dynamic. Plus, I kept coming in second to this one kid who was just like a total piano genius. And just the whole thing, I hated it. So I stopped playing music. And music was, I mean, I was a really musical kid. It was just like my whole life. I stopped for years and then I picked up guitar and it was a different instrument. And then one night when I was backpacking in Greece after college, I was on this beach and there were all these other college students. We couldn't speak the same language, but one of them had a guitar and he handed me the guitar and I started playing Beatles songs. And everybody knew all the Beatles songs. And we all sang the Beatles songs, even though we couldn't talk the same language. And it blew my mind. I was, wow, music can be this completely other thing that connects you. It doesn't put you in competition. And I'm a cooperative game designer. The systems I've designed, the games I've worked on with these amazing teams and leaders, the teams I coach now, I have worked on many kinds of games, but most of what I've done, and certainly the biggest hits, have at heart been cooperative games. And so that change in opening up a cooperative experience with music where the whole is greater than the sum of the parts, you know, changed my life. I started playing in bands, which led to me getting the gig in rock band. I was a system designer, but I was also a longtime gigging musician. And both of those were required for that gig. So it just really opened up a lot for me to start to understand how music can be a cooperative game. Yeah, it's so interesting. 
So like two of my sisters are full-time musicians. I'm one of six kids. Everybody plays in a band in the house. There's only one person who can't play an instrument. The last one born, funnily enough, what he was doing with his time. But I think there's so much interesting things about music, sensing and responding when you work with other people, trying to anticipate action, responding to how people play together. I think it's really interesting, like a lot of the lessons I also learned in a band, it's like bands also has loads of politics. Who's really in control of the band? Who's driving what we're trying to do? Who decides what songs we should play every week? You know, I think it's a fun, interesting construct for especially me when I was growing up an adolescent playing in bands. I learned a lot about myself and I learned a lot about, you know, working, as you say, in a collaborative type environment, which had friction and it had competition and had ego. So what were some of the other lessons you learned as you brought those forward? It's teamwork. I mean, a lot of what I do now with my team accelerator, which I can tell you more about, where I work with product teams, is make everything gel so we don't even remember whose idea it was. We just are getting the work done in a really focused yet creative way. And I learned that in bands. I watched band leaders. Um, I also learned it in MMOs, multiplayer games, learned a lot of that. But first in bands, I was in a lot of bands. So that's really interesting because you experience different leadership styles. And you see micromanagers, speaking of band dynamics. You also see leaders, if you're lucky, you work with band leaders who bring out the greatness in everybody. And that's magic. You know it. And so I modeled on some really great leaders. I experienced terrible leaders. Also, I experienced predatory leaders. I mean, you know, the whole range of things. I was a leader. I put together my own band for a while, and that was amazing, being a leader of that. The piano player was great. I mean, he was genius until the second set when he was drunk. <laughs> so, you know, I had to deal with that. I love it. Yeah. And I always think it's funny, in, especially in the worlds we all operate in, the more I more meet people, you know, I find out more musicians, right? So I had Eric Reese on the podcast and we recorded it in his house, in his band room. And we were sitting there like looking at all his different instruments and how he never gets to play. And uh, Jeff Galtef is another one. He's an amazing piano player as well. They always had two rules, no more than two beers before you go on stage. I don't know if he still keeps those rules when he does speaking engagements, but... You know, there's definitely something. It's like pool. You know, I'm really good at pool when I have two beers. But when I get to three beers, I'm useless. Exactly. So that really gets to another one of the pivotal experiences in my career. So that beach in Greece made me fall in love with music again and really go way into that. That turned out to be surprisingly helpful in all kinds of ways. Plus fun, plus interesting and educational in all kinds of ways. But then... I worked in tech. I studied neuroscience and psychology in school, got into tech, got into UX design, media design, got into gaming, kind of through this pathway, and met a lot of wonderful people along the way. But when I first went to the Game Developers Conference, which was years ago, when it was still small and in Santa Clara, I went there and I walked into that place and looked around and walked around, and it was a, these are my people moment. The people were bizarre, a lot of them. They were this incredible combination of 
brilliant and wildly creative, but focused and analytical, both. And a lot of them. And all shapes and sizes, first place I ever met transgender people, because they were just there, it's just part of the scene. And I started going to the Game Developers Conference and just being part of it, and I was completely accepted. And I found that there was this alternative to the tech world that was adjacent to the tech world, but where you could talk about the stuff that I was really passionate about, like how social groups form and go dysfunctional and get refunctional and like what was going on online with that that was different than, you know, just all this stuff. And it led me into working on MMOs and working with Richard Garriott and on Rock Band, on The Sims with Will Wright and like all these amazing things. But it all started when I found my tribe. And I think that for a lot of us, that's a really pivotal moment. And it shapes how we feel. It's like, who do you want to work with? Oh, and I think it's so lucky when you find that moment and when you feel so at home in a place. You know, I think at the technology world, in many ways, it's become so homogenous that it's almost become tiring to spend time in it. But when you do sort of look around the edges and this sort of convergence of so many of your passions, right? both what you've studied, what you experienced, what you enjoyed, and sort of finding a perfect sort of nexus of all that where you can do amazing things, you know, like that's a real privilege, I think. And sometimes it's serendipitous how people find these things. And some people are lucky enough to design and create those opportunities. So what were some of the signals that helped you realize that? What were some of the moments where you were like, this is my tribe? And obviously, it's been a huge accelerant for not only what you do, but your motivation for what you do, how much you enjoy what you do. I know you talk a lot about in game design, obviously flow is such a huge concept. It sounds like you've almost found that in life as much as work. So I have a lot of flow in my work now and not everything. I mean, part of work is always drudgery and just difficult, but I do have a lot of flow. So some of the signals were finding mentors that I could click with and finding a way that I could contribute immediately to a much larger team. Again, it's that co-op theme. So when I first started working in gaming, some of my first gigs, I was a UX designer on large scale gaming platforms because I had a lot of UX background, you know, in tech and worked at Sun and at Paramount and all these things. And I was like, I'll take a job as a UX designer on this to learn the trade, you know, to learn. And I think, again, part of bands really taught me, it's like, I'm a bass player, first of all. So bands have different roles. So you've played in bands. So I was a bass player too, yeah. Yeah, so I'm also- I real in the back. Right, I started on guitar and I played piano, of course, because I was piano when I was small. And then guitar and bass. But I really enjoy the role of bass. And a lot of the professional work I do, I'm- playing that same role essentially because the bass player's job is to make everybody else sound good and you're you really, know it. you're the bridge between the melody and the rhythm if you're doing it right i mean some bass players are amazing but they're just kind of showing off you know but then a lot of bass players they really create that bridge you don't necessarily notice it but you just think wow this groove is really awesome right and that's great that's a great role but you also have to understand how to set up the guitar player and The bass is a glue in many ways of the whole band. So just knowing that there's these different roles, if I'm in a team meeting, like I was in a team meeting this morning, 
And there's one person in that meeting that's very vibrant. They're the lead guitarist type, right? <laughs> and what you do is you like set them up and sometimes you might like come in with the riff because they're kind of going on and on, you know, and it's time to move on to the next segment. And that's part of my job is that is so great. Like the point you just made is so great. Now, as Laura was saying, blah, blah, blah. And so it's really helpful, again, those band metaphors. And I think just understanding that it takes everybody to make the song sound great. Yeah. What makes a great team? What makes a great band? So as we dive more a little more into your gaming background, like, right, so I absolutely loved your books, right? I think it's brilliant. It's one of my favorite ones. Which book? Well, Game Thinking. Oh, what did you like about it? Well, so I, I advise a number of different startups. One of the designers was like, I've just found this great way about getting focused on early customers, like really creating like a really passionate set of vibrant early fans and then building from there. And I was like, great. Yeah, it just sounds good. And then she's like, I just read this amazing book by Amy Jo Kim and it just lit her up. And I think what I love about this idea of like really having these passionate, like small group of fans to start with, to really like work with and build out, you know, I think that's such a great strategy for building products. You know, I think the way you articulate how to do that and create these roads to mastery for people, I think is really powerful. Also, my first ever startup was a mobile games development company. So we built a game called Wireless Pets, which was basically like Tamagotchi. We launched it on a technology called WAP way, way back in the day, just after Snake was on mobile phones and Nokia's. And then they put these really small Java micro editions onto phones where you could start porting over games from the 80s. And we built this game, Wireless Pest, and it just went crazy. Like, it was like the most popular game in Europe, and it got us funding. And I was probably about 22 years old. I, I thought I was on my way to create the next great game. Like, and uh, it was in a tiny little place outside Edinburgh. Rockstar Games were just across the road from us. Edinburgh's a real interesting place for game. There's a really good course in Dundee College there that so many great gaming companies have come out of. So, you know, there's a lot of things about your origin that really sort of, I thought, were curious. So I think that's what drew me into your work. And then the more I read about it, the more I enjoyed it. Um, I didn't know that you had worked on all these great games until I started to read more, obviously, about your work. Yeah. Through my career, I've been able to work on six or seven breakthrough hits, you know, that were really innovative and that ended up being hits, which is rare. And then I've also worked on dozens of not hits. You know it. <laughs> and the patterns are really what I'm bringing with the game thinking methodology. It's not a guarantee. But, you know, the stuff about the early customers is counterintuitive to a lot of people. And also I've seen people give it lip service and then not execute it. But it's counterintuitive because it challenges the myth of TAM, total addressable market. And when you're raising money, and I've run a startup and raised money, you always have a slide about TAM, your TAM slide, total addressable market. It's a useful exercise. But then if you're innovating, you can't just go after your average customer in that market. That's not how it works. You have to capture this narrow early beachhead market first. That's just how innovation works. I've shared a lot of videos about that. There's, it's not just me. It's like there's a lot of background. But there's also a lot of people that do not understand that. They just don't. 
the best people do understand it, but there's a lot of people that don't, including a lot of investors. So I didn't used to understand it because it isn't necessarily what you learn in school. A lot of you know stuff you learn in school, they're teaching you these more quote-unquote classic methods. But I learned this in gaming. But I also learned it outside of gaming when I saw other hits. I worked on eBay really early when Pierre was still there before and during the transition to Meg Whitman. And that's exactly what they had going on. And I've written about that too. And I watched it. Like they had this small group that weren't really the main stream of their customers. They were like this slice of early vocal opinionated. And sometimes they over design for them and that gets you into a hole. That's what I'm always curious about. Like these counterintuitive ideas, I think we're sent to these like big business schools, you know, harking back to the industrial era, super popular in the 80s, like get as big as you can, build your moat, create your barrier to entry, be number one in your market. And yet this approach is in somewhat contrary to that and yet so effective. You know, it goes back to 1961. Everett Rogers, scientist at Bell Lab, published Diffusions of Innovations, data-driven, pre-internet, data-driven study out of Bell Labs. He had no agenda, right? And what he found is that innovations go through the early market. They always start by capturing the early market and then go into the early and later mainstream. They never start there. They just don't. And Jeffrey Moore wrote a whole book about that called Crossing the Chasm, where he talked about the challenge of going from your early innovators and early adopters into your early majority. He called that the chasm. Lots of people just go right for the early majority. They like forget that Crossing the Chasm was written about turning a hobbyist hit into a mainstream computer, the Apple the Apple II. So there's a lot of other insight and science and smart people that preach the same thing. What I've done is make it accessible and give people a step-by-step -step system for implementing it. And I learned this from working with people like Will Wright, who, by the way, has an amazing masterclass. If you bought masterclass.com, check out Will Wright's masterclass. I helped put that together on the back end. He is just unbelievably articulate and inspiring, and it's just great stuff. Anyway, we were working on The Sims, and I worked on The Sims, the original Sims, at three different times. First, early on with like the core team, like, what is this thing? Like, what's the clay, right? What is this thing going to be? Then, when we were first bringing the uh, testing into play, when we were building it out, and then when we were polishing it during beta, particularly polishing the onboarding, and worked at it all during those times. And it almost got canceled right before it shipped. All these execs were like, what is this thing? This is weird. Is this going to be anything? So on The Sims, at the beginning, we were testing it with these simulation enthusiasts who well knew, like 150 of them on a mailing list. And I was also on the team responsible for scoping out the market. And the market was casual gamers, particularly females who like, liked casual games and liked, you know, light simulations. But that's not who we were testing on early on. We were testing with these like really nerdy simulation enthusiasts who went to like sim cons. And I kept saying, it was counterintuitive to me. It's like, what the hell? What, why are we doing this? This makes no sense to me. We're not designing for them. What is going on? And that's what a lot of people think. It turns out 
that's brilliant. And the reason it's brilliant is they're your early beachhead. The reason is there's so much you can learn and get out of iterating ideas with them that it gets you to a point where you can actually get a vector in a direction and build out for the next layer of people around them. Same thing on Rock Band. I saw the same thing in action. I saw the same thing happening on eBay, which, by the way, when I worked on eBay, there was a bigger competitor. Everybody thought we were going to fail. It was like, it wasn't a sure thing at all. Mm. And I kept seeing this pattern and it was counterintuitive. And then I found Everett Rogers and Jeffrey Moore. And I was like, okay, I see what's going on here. Here's what happens though especially like game developers, app developers, they develop really early. They find this really early passionate audience and then they get stuck. It's a cul-de-sac and they get stuck there and then they get burned and they never do it again. They're like, oh, it was terrible. We only had a few thousand people and blah, blah, blah. It's because they didn't understand that it was a beachhead. And once you understand that instead of like the whole city, right, like the whole land, you take very different strategies. So how do you recognize those transition points, I think, is really key. You plan for them and you iterate toward them. But you also respond to the market. So how do you create the framework to make those decisions, Amy Jo? Would you be defining those outcomes in advance? Would you have signals you'd be looking for, indicators? Like what are some of the senses that help you know what do we need to plan for, one, but then how do we adapt the plan when we start to move? One of the great experiences I had was working with Netflix when they were bringing their service to life. They were doing very well with DVDs. They had their service. They had the basic ratings. But there was a lot of drop-off. It was still pretty new, figuring out who's the core audience, what are we doing. And they had an amazing team. I was working with the uh, innovation group. And they had all these stats. And they said, you know, we've reached a local maxima. Do you know what a local maxima is? I said, hallelujah, you're speaking my language. (laughs) So they realized that with their analytics, the millions and thousands of people and data points and analytics, they could understand certain things, but it was a local maxima and they really couldn't understand why they had this drop off at two months, et cetera, et cetera. So we did a project and we looked at and studied people's experience. And we, you know, sliced off a group and we created a cross-functional team internal to Netflix, which was awesome because they were really, really great to work with. Very dynamic. Didn't always agree, but very respectful, you know, like strong company culture, cross-functional yeah. team, dynamic, some arguing, respectful. You get a lot done that way. Yeah, no, and, we, we, right? had a, we had Gib Biddle was on the show previously to shared some stories from there. It's great. Yeah, yeah, he's amazing. So... We were able to do rapid iterative testing and iteration of ideas with a group of about 25 people that were selected using this three-stage superfan funnel, which I talk about and share about on my channel, Game Thinking TV, which you, and in my book. But we used those techniques and we found this small group of people that were a proxy and representative for sort of the leading edge of their audience. And again, if you get feedback from the wrong people, you go astray. You really need to get those people right if it's going to be a small group. But if you do that, you can really get to know them and calibrate them. And then you can iterate a lot with them. And it led to some real breakthroughs in our ability to, one, solve the problem of this two-month drop-off, which was why this project was formed. But also understand how to 
build trust in the system. For example, one of the little features we introduced as part of this project, which I don't even know if it's still in Netflix, was when you'd log back into Netflix after watching something, it would say, please rate this thing you just watched and we'll reveal some new recommendations. And so you'd say, okay, I like this five, three, or one, right? This thing and it says, okay, well, based on what you just said, we think you'd like this. And use of those skyrocketed because we were explaining to people why they were getting the recommendation, which is what we had learned by talking to people instead of just looking at the analytics. And we lifted out of that local maxima and we were able to tweak the core underlying systems and add some things that really spoke to what people cared about and what was really getting in their way. I love this story again about getting really focused on a small set of users to learn from, to collaborate with from. How do you decide how to slice those people out? What are some of the areas that you look for characteristics when you're trying to create that slice of customer segment or group that you're going to work with to try and create these ideas and test with? Well, there's different ways to do it. Sometimes on a project, the client already has a pretty good idea and there's a really specific reason why there's a slice of their market that represents their future, right? In which case, for instance, I worked with a company in Europe that had a free tool with some sort of premium level that a lot of teachers and students were using and they pivoted to business tool for business model reasons. And so we really needed to like look at those people and not listen so much to what the educators needed, even though that was kind of breaking all of our hearts. So there was that. But then the important thing is when you're looking for the early adopter slice of your market, the canary in a coal mine, the leading edge, the people that are going to be able to give you good feedback on like rough prototypes. When you're looking for those people, there's three qualities that you want them to have. One, they actually have the problem that your idea solves, your product solves. They really have it. Two, they know they have it. It's top of mind. They don't need to be convinced. One of the biggest differences that'll help you tell the difference between an early adopter and early majority is that early adopter feels that pain point so bad, they don't need convincing. If it might help, they'll try it. Yeah. That's early majority, tip. they want social proof. They want to know who else is using it. Then yeah. they get interested. Mm. Key difference. So that's a hot tip. Took me a while to learn that one. So two, they have the problem. They know they have the problem top of mind. And the third and most important one, they're taking actions that show you they're trying to solve the problem. And that one, you can get at with the right screening questions. And it takes some creativity to come up with the right screening question for any given application. There's a lot of examples in the game thinking book, as you know. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. But if you're able to ask people questions about their behaviors versus their attitudes or what they might aspirationally wish for someday, you get much better data. All right. Now, this is my jam. Love diving into behaviors and looking for leading behaviors that will help actually people perform the actions we want. Because this is the fun part of game design. All these great tools, they can be used for good and they can be used for, let's just say, not so much good, right? Driving specific behavior. Like We're designing interactions to make people perform behaviors that we want. Right? So here's the thing. A lot of people think game design is about driving behaviors, tracking and driving behaviors. And for some people in the way they design it is, because there's a lot of different kinds of game designers, just like there's lots of kinds of movie directors, right? But the best game designers, that's not how they design. They don't drive and track behaviors. They create an experience and a journey. 
And then they use mechanics and things like that to deliver the journey. It's from thinking about tracking and driving behaviors to thinking about empowering a customer to take this really compelling journey. It's that somewhat counterintuitive shift that's the core difference between gamification and game thinking. I really like that, actually. And maybe this is a bad analogy, but how it makes me think when you say that. It's about when people launch companies for a purpose to help people's lives be better, impact society in a positive way versus those who launch for stakeholder or shareholder value. Maybe that's a naive statement, but what do you think? Absolutely. I think there's a lot of analogies. And some of this, you know, goes right back to my psych background and intrinsic versus extrinsic motivations and rewards. You know, there's a whole area of psych that's called operant conditioning, which is all about shaping behavior with extrinsic rewards. Muriel's book is largely about that. The Power of Habits largely about that. BJ Fogg gets much more nuanced. He knows people that really are expert behavioral scientists understand that operant conditioning and shaping behavior with rewards backfires. Only a and so a lot of people that experience game mechanics or gamification, you know, for the first time, including myself, I mean, I've been through this myself. I'm very empathetic. You try it and you see your stats go up and you look at your analytics and they go up, you know, like those Netflix people, right? And you're like, I've got the silver bullet. This is awesome. Boom, boom, boom. And then you notice that there's this like six week, eight week drop off. And no matter what, you can't figure out how to fix it. And that's where you go, well, this approach actually seems to deliver a short-term lift, but not the long-term engagement we're looking for. So you hit on a theme that I really wanted to talk to you specifically about, because I think these notions you've mentioned about techniques that have become very popularized in Silicon Valley, especially by the work of James Clear and Nir Al with extrinsic motivators for rewards, this idea of tapping into intrinsic motivation which again, I think is a nice delineation towards game thinking. Tell us a little bit more about that. This help the listeners understand about how to start to really design for intrinsic motivation, because I think it's such a subtle but powerful concept in this realm. Well, step one is understanding that the best use of any game mechanics or progression mechanics is to support a journey that they then in and of themselves have no inherent value. And just understanding that, a lot of people understand that the hard way by spending a lot of money and you know, buying a gamification platform or something. When they're used well, they can be great. Look at Duolingo. People say, well, what about Duolingo? Duolingo has an incredibly well-tuned content progression that underlies that entire game. And the structure of the activities is really tuned yep. and excellent. Yep. Those game mechanics support your journey. That's why they work. And so that's step one is to understand that. And step two is honestly, you know, watch my free videos, go buy my book because I give you like, where's the framework of how to build a coherent and engagement driving customer journey. I'm giving you the framework. Like I've developed a framework. Why? because it's really hard to do and it's really powerful. And I've synthesized frameworks I learned in gaming that really apply to like 
multiplayer combat games, but don't apply so well to social products on, you know, on the larger web. So I've simplified and synthesized things that I learned from gaming and also just from trial and error. So a couple of tips. One is hold back on the mechanics, like do that later. Two is map out your hypotheses about discovery, onboarding, habit building, and mastery. Think about your customer's experience as a journey to who they want to become, a journey to becoming more X than they are now. An emotional journey from, you know, anxiety to calm, from worried to excited, from whatever it is. You know, again, a lot of game design is these layered emotional arcs and journeys. That applies to product design too. So Slack has a really good core journey and no gamification, thank goodness. And I shared a lot of videos. Again, if you go to my channel, you can see that. So think of the core journey and ask yourself, what does interacting with my experience, my product, my service, my whatever, how does that transform the person who's using it? How do they want to be transformed? It doesn't even have to be a big deal. It can be knowledge. It can be relationships. It can be sense of confidence. It can be, you know, all different kinds of things. But if you think about creating a product that gets better as the customer becomes more skilled, you'll be really getting to the heart of it rather yeah. than manipulating and shaping behavior. Yeah. And I really love this intent. And I think it's, again, one of the things I really enjoy about your work. When you talk about this idea of character transformation, it's a personal right. transformation. It's taking people on this journey to be the best that they can be. And I just think it's such a great framing intent. I think it's such a powerful way to build like narrative. Like when you're trying to come up and think about what the future could be like, like create that narrative and write a hero's journey who goes through these levels where they struggle, but then they get better and they feel rewarded for that. And then there's another struggle and then they find a way to master it. And I just think it's such a fantastic way to frame it where so much of the behavior design work is like, oh, I did the task. Where's my treat? Oh, I did my task. Right. Where's my treat? Oh, look, and it takes away, I think, so much of this ideas that I think are really great about your work and the way you describe it is it's about intrinsic motivation. It's about helping the person become the best that they can be. It's helping them recognize they're going to have struggle. Struggle is part of the journey. You know, no journey is all easy. All the best things we do in life require us to test our character, to cultivate skills and behaviors in ourselves that we don't have, to grow as individuals. And I think that's true in life as is true in game design. And I think, you know, not enough people remember those essence of what that's about. And it's certainly what I enjoy about both when you talk about it and explain it to people is like you're designing from that intent. And I think we need to hear more people talk about that. And honestly, I really learned it from struggle, from working on projects, from working on a lot of failed projects and from working on projects that had struggle but turned into these massive hits that brought joy to just millions of people. And part of what we learned in that struggle was how powerful it is to really understand who you're designing for and what story is unfolding in their head over time. One of the things Will Wright always used to say on SimCity, on Sims, on other projects, he'd say it to the team when we needed reminding because 
creative people get excited about features. People that are engineers get excited about building things. You know, we just, we're like that. I'm like that. Who's and I want to build stuff. It's great. Yeah, I mean, it's really tangible and all kinds of great stuff. Something Will would always say that I've adopted because it's so powerful. He'd say, because we get excited about, you know, what is the narrative and the blah, blah, and the blah, blah, blah. And like, he'd say, remember, the most important story is unfolding in the player's head. Never forget that. That's the story. And what we're talking about there is the mental model. We're talking about creating a coherent mental model in your user's head. This goes far beyond games. It really is the heart of this, and it's the heart of intrinsic motivation, too, because, of course, we use extrinsic motivators. Like, you know, there's certain things like knowing how far you've gone and how far you have to go to complete something is like scaffolding, right? It's really helpful. So there's all kinds of scaffolding that's useful. It's just when you try to use it without the intrinsic, it's like icing without the cake. It doesn't really last, right? So... What Will would say is, you know, remember that story. And so when we would be working on The Sims, for instance, we would talk about the mental model integrated in with all the mechanics and all the systems and all the everything, amazing team, and all the spreadsheet models of everything we were doing. We talk about that, you know, is this a digital dollhouse? You know, what is this? And what are the expectations? What breaks that expectation, et cetera, et cetera. On Rock Band, Rock Band, you look back on it, okay, worldwide hit, huge franchise, blah, blah, blah. We were working on it and people were like, should we even fund this? This is insane. Like, right. And we and talked thank you about for the, pushing through on that, by the way. Right. Well, uh, thank you. I mean, yes, I love that game. I just really, really do. You do know it. it. Yeah. So we were talking about the mental model and there were actually competing mental models. It's always interesting to pull back the curtain and go, wow, it didn't have to turn out that way. Absolutely. Yeah. And so one of the mental models was like, a touring indie band. Like you can like be part of a touring indie band and there was all this cool stuff and a lot of the people on the team were actually indie musicians. So, and then there was this other model that was like a cartoon version of that. You start in a garage and you end in a huge stadium and your character models aren't gonna be super realistic. They're gonna be somewhat cartoon-like. Again, think about rock band, right? Creative choices made because of a mental model. And we ultimately, through a lot of iteration and testing, decided to go with the cartoonish mental model because it's more mainstream, more people can relate to it. And also, it has a lot of really useful hooks for unfolding complexity and progression, like larger stadiums and tricked out gear and all that stuff. So thinking about those mental models and really saying, hey, there's more than one. Which one are we going to build in the player's head? Of all the tips I could give you, if you really get good at that, and again, I've shared several videos that really help you with that, help all of you with that. If you really think about that and think about not just like mental model, but think about 30 to 60 days of the experience, what story are you building in your player's head that they're telling themselves about your app or your product? If you can model that and get your team's hands around that, your ability to drive retention is going to skyrocket because you're going to really understand their point of view, the customer's point of view. They're going to have that experience over time, whether you decide to analyze it and model it or not. Modeling it just gets you ahead of the curve. Yeah. And, you know, I love all these tips. They're so helpful and they resonate a lot, I think, with how I like to see the world, you know, around narrative, building towards intrinsic motivators, helping people become the best they can be and being part of what story you want to create. 
they're such well-meaning and well-intended ideas for people to try. So looking ahead then, what are you most excited about in the industry and what you're working on? What are some of the breakthrough spaces for you? I'm really excited about the explosion of creativity that's being unleashed as we all shelter in place and deal with this pandemic and all of the dynamics going on around it. I'm seeing so much creativity in mixing social and gaming. I'm seeing an explosion of a need for really meaningful forms of gaming. I'm seeing a need for family gaming and couple gaming and social experiences that are game-like but still feel kind of like a party. And there's just this need that's opened up that's in exactly the area that I've worked in and love. And so that's part of why I'm seeing it, of course. People, you know, my inbox is full of it. And it's so exciting to me because there's so much good that's happening for the planet with the lack of air travel and the lack of cars. And if we can have these meaningful remote experiences when we're distributed, the meaningful part is the part that many people are doubtful we can do. But I've worked in gaming for long enough to tell you with great assurance, online relationships are incredibly meaningful and powerful and real. So there's a space there for all kinds of social groupings. As I said, couples and solo play and families and kids playing simulations. Their parents can have part of it as part of their learning. And learning games are just like, oh my God, the stuff going on in that space with people coming up with all kinds of amazing tutoring and coaching and exercises and you know games to play in Zoom remotely and that teach you math and all kinds of stuff. So that I'm seeing so much of that, that amidst all the difficult news that's everywhere and my heart goes out to everyone suffering because I think it's touching us all in some ways and this slow motion wave will continue to rumble across the world and across our country. But as we're all bracing for impact and sheltering in place, I'm so inspired by all that creativity as a designer and as a coach, you know, as a bass player helping teams level up what they're doing. And so I'm excited about that. We have some openings coming up. We have a team accelerator where we work with game studios, startup teams, and global brands like Disney and Shiseido and Tesla and Google to level up their innovation practices. And we have some openings in that coming up in May. If you go to gamethinking.io, you can look at our programs and learn about that and apply. Super excited about that. We also have a short boot camp coming up in May that will be a toe in the ocean for people that would love to do that, but it's a little out of your reach. So I took my business online 10 years ago, and for the last three years, it's been online only, including with people that are 20 minutes down the road here in Silicon Valley. And the reason I do that is I believe in it. I have kids. I find that we can actually do better work. I find that with the right tools and practices, working online can be your strategic advantage. You know it. So we've developed those practices and tools and templates, and we deliver those in our practices and our programs, and I have never been busier. And I'm really thrilled to be able to help people make the leap and have to not make all the mistakes I did and really immediately get work done with a distributed team. The teams we're working with right now in our accelerator Every week they tell me this is their lifeline, that the place they're getting the most work done right now 
is on our projects because everything is online native. Well, you know, I'm excited to see the kind of things that you do. I think this world, like every situation brings new opportunity. I think, you know, you're perfectly poised to really make the most of this. I think I'm looking forward to see what you continue to write and share. And you're so liberal with what you share with everybody. So thank you very much for doing that. And it's been a pleasure to have you on the show. Thanks very much for giving us your time and insight today. I appreciate it. It's wonderful to get a chance to hang out. You know it. Cool.